Hello all and welcome to episode 12 of the podcast. This is, and indeed I am, the Dream Filter. In the last episode, we began to discuss the military-industrial complex. We covered associated warnings given by President Eisenhower and, to a lesser extent, JFK. We touched on the bloated amount of money and personnel involved in aerospace and defense, the need for perpetual war to justify it, and an ongoing chicken-and-the-egg scenario in which those who profited from war needed foreign policy to be accordingly influenced while those in power with a globalist agenda needed increasing arms manufacturing, sales and military expenditure to support their geopolitical schemes. If you haven't already, it might be a good idea to listen to the previous episode. Do you know how many military bases slash installations are maintained and operated by the USA across the globe? By the start of 2018, the answer was somewhere between 700 to 800, spread out across 60 to 70 countries, including roughly 250,000 military personnel. It has nothing to do with global empire and everything to do with democracy and human rights. What is the cost of this global occupation? Hard to nail down a specific figure from year to year, but thought to be well over $150 billion annually. Every other empire that has ever conquered and occupied has done it in the name of conquest and occupation. But not our one. Not the West. We're different, aren't we? Special. Military-industrial complex? Nothing to do with it. Control? Power? Nothing to do with it. Energy resources, oil fields, petroleum, nothing to do with it. Fresh water and other natural resources, NTDWI, cold, hard geopolitical posturing against other sovereign nations, NTDWI, we're special. Special. Have you noticed a common factor between all enemies of the US? They're guilty of the same sin. A desire to remain truly sovereign. That's it. Draconian Saudi Arabia, the world's largest funder of international terrorism, is an ally of the West with a particularly close connection in the realms of energy, military and oil. North Korea is not. Remember, it does not matter if a country is good, bad or indifferent. The only sin that counts is a wish for sovereignty, truly independent of the West. It was mentioned in an earlier episode of this podcast that Washington may have been picked as a military headquarters for the New World Order. Since the Second World War, this has been quite evident. Of course, this does not mean it will always be so. If Bible prophecy is anything to go by, the USA will be virtually irrelevant in the time of the end. In fact, you would struggle to find a credible biblical scholar who could find any meaningful reference to it within this context. Meanwhile, prophecy is replete with references to Europe, Russia, and various countries from Africa and Asia. The widely accepted view among scholars of the Bible is that a major relocation of power, including military, will take place across the Atlantic Ocean before the time of the end. Point A will be the USA, point B the European continent. 
This obviously remains to be seen, as in the current secular world, the USA is still far and away the dominant military power of the West, and even the world. China and Russia are not so far behind on a practical level, but clearly are when it comes to spending. The military-industrial complex has been known to fund both sides of the same conflict. There is a documented, ongoing precedent for this kind of behaviour. The Rothschilds, a banking family whose name is synonymous with the Bavarian Illuminati, as well as the Freemasons, funded both sides during the Napoleonic Wars, namely the British and French militaries from about 1813 to 1815. The third son of Patriarch Meyer Amschel Rothschild, Nathan Rothschild, funded the British war effort very heavily during these, the final two years of the Napoleonic Wars that ended with French defeat at the Battle of Waterloo in Belgium, at the hands of a British-led force. During the same period, the other four Rothschild brothers had been financially backing the French. If we jump forward and have a look at World War II, you can see a similar story. It is a known fact that a whole host of major American financial institutions provided handsome, wholesale support to Nazi Germany during the war years. If you'd like to read a detailed, well-referenced article on this, I suggest you check out www.globalresearch.ca slash American hyphen banks hyphen funded hyphen the hyphen Nazis slash 31983. Published on July 20th, 2012, it was sourced from an outlet called Washington's Blog. If you don't wish to read it for yourself, Here's the crux. It has relevant links to establishment sources such as the BBC, Guardian and New York Times who, strangely enough, had actually documented this support in earlier articles. The guilty parties included Barclays Bank, Chase Manhattan Bank, JP Morgan, Guarantee Trust Co. of New York, Bank of the City of New York and American Express. Prescott Bush, a banker and politician, father of George Bush Sr., grandfather of Dubya, was also the director and stockholder of several businesses that profited from their support of Nazi Germany. Although his broader operation would be closed down when the USA entered the war. Lastly, the San Francisco Chronicle, another establishment source, documented the significant financial support given to the Nazi eugenics program by the Carnegie Institution, the Harriman Railway Estate and Rockefeller Foundation, who themselves were in concert with a whole host of scientists and universities across the USA. If you consider yourself to be a true hater of racism, not merely a self-righteous virtue-signaling cretin who might even shout racist at a moving shadow, you should inform yourself about what eugenics really is. A great starting point would be the appropriate link, which is easy to find within the online article that I just recommended. Now, back to the military-industrial complex post-World War II. It has a proven and extensive track record of arming and funding opposing sides in various conflicts. Here are some examples for you. The Iraq-Iran War of 1980-1988 was a brutal, protracted stalemate. A 1987 Los Angeles Times article titled 26 Countries Selling Arms to Both Countries stated that Yes, 
26 countries were each guilty of selling weapons to both sides during the first six years of the war, with leading roles assumed by the USA and Soviet Union. The Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, the group responsible for the report, stated that legislators were being increasingly sidelined in the international arms trade and that third parties were assuming a more prominent role, even giving rise to a significant black market. During the Iraq-Iran war, the U.S. gave several billion dollars of open financial assistance as well as military support to the Ba'athist regime of Saddam Hussein. But according to a researcher quoted in the article by the LA Times, the mid-80s disclosure of U.S. arms sales to Iran in an infamous undertaking now widely known as the Iran-Contra Affair had led U.S. lapdogs such as Sweden, Britain, South Africa and the Netherlands to join the fray in arming both sides for extra profit. By the way, what else was the USA doing throughout all of the 1980s? That's right. Arming and funding the Mujahideen in their jihads against the occupying Soviet army. Operation Cyclone was the official name of this long-term CIA operation, starting with tens of millions of dollars annually from the outset of the war, but soon reaching well over half a billion dollars annually. The CIA campaign was only part of the broader Western proxy war in Afghanistan and would last several years beyond the 1989 withdrawal of Soviet forces, during which time the civil war continued to rage. The overall result of this was a country blasted even further back into the Stone Ages than before. The establishment of Al-Qaeda in 1988 by one Mr. Osama bin Laden, in conjunction with other anti-Soviet Mujahideen fighters, and the ultimate rise of the Taliban in 1996, which would be dislodged about five years later following a US-led invasion of Afghanistan. Good work, military-industrial complex. Osama bin Laden and the US were on the same side against the Soviet Union in the 1980s. Persistent, circumstantial evidence has suggested that at one point he was a direct asset of the CIA. While not easy to prove, it's not implausible. Remember, the US officially backed Saddam Hussein during his war with Iran before brutally turning on him in the 1991 Gulf War, the focus of our next episode. Let's just hold up for a second and get some perspective. Woo there, boy. Woo there. Hold up. Let's take a look at this thing. In the case of Afghanistan, having helped set up Al-Qaeda, at least indirectly, as well as the Taliban, who ultimately prevailed in the ongoing fighting that followed the Soviet withdrawal, U.S.-led forces would invade Afghanistan following the 9-11 attacks, in which hijacked airliners took down the Twin Towers, as well as Tower 7, which was not taken down by a hijacked airliner, but a... a... um... Taken down by a, uh, <coughs> a uh, it was taken down by a, uh, <coughs> <coughs> <sighs>
Even since the US-led invasion of Afghanistan, there have been persistent reports of the US funding the Taliban. A book was published in 2012 by one Douglas A. Wissing titled Funding the Enemy: How US Taxpayers Bankroll the Taliban. According to the book, the US government has mismanaged billions of dollars of aid money in Afghanistan, in the process bolstering the trade of opium used in the production of heroin and putting many millions of dollars into the Taliban coffers. If you don't have the time or money for the book, you could peruse an informative online article on the topic from www.pri.org/stories/2009-09-09-US-military-funding-both-sides-Afghan-war. If you read the article from September 9th by Jean McKenzie 2009 you will find concise specific information and come across several revelations. One of these is that US military money intended for development and nation building much of which is siphoned off to the Taliban by various middlemen is along with the narcotics industry a key source of ongoing funding for the Taliban insurgency. The other major war post 9/11 was Iraq, which kicked off with the US-led invasion of that country in 2003, despite it having nothing to do with 9/11. We will deal with this massive crime sometime in the future. Now though, we will touch not only on Iraq, but Syria, both of which have suffered more than any other nation in the fight against ISIS. and for a while seemed unable to hold back its advance before various actors helped them to ultimately turn the tables in 2012 the US government began to provide logistical support to Sunni Gulf states Qatar Saudi Arabia and Turkey as they arms and funded anti-Assad insurgent groups that from the outset incorporated a significant array of violent jihadist elements While they may well have been already doing so on a clandestine basis, the CIA in conjunction with the State Department began to directly ship weapons to the insurgents in 2013 on an open basis. I'm not about to get into Syria in any great detail right now. It's a subject I know a fair bit about and would like to get into another time and possibly at length. In July 2017, the US government reportedly decided to stop CIA support for anti-Assad rebels, at least on an open basis. Between the official commencement and end of open CIA support for the Syrian insurgents, an abundance of small arms and heavy armaments ended up in their hands. For a basic summary of the outcome of this, you could have a look at an online article. and i really must hold my nose every time we refer to an establishment outlet from the washington post it is from a writer called david ignatius was released on july 20th 2017 and is titled what the demise of the cia's anti assad program means i will not discuss the article in any way but will read you a section from a paragraph about halfway into it here it is dot 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 run from secret operations centers in Turkey and Jordan 
The program pumped many hundreds of millions of dollars to many dozens of militia groups. One knowledgeable official estimates that the CIA-backed fighters may have killed or wounded 100,000 Syrian soldiers and their allies over the past four years. Dot, dot, dot. What the article doesn't mention is the countless civilians who were also slain by the rebels. In addition to this, as with the anti-Soviet proxy war in Afghanistan, the CIA contribution, while significant, was by no means the bulk of the broader campaign. Right from the beginning of the conflict and in the lead-up, Syria was the target of an international plot within the context of the so-called Arab Spring. Through a synchronized, multinational cocktail of covert military support for violent anti-government insurgents, black operations, intelligence operations, mainstream media disinformation, periodical airstrikes, social media manipulation, and special forces deployments, the goal was for Assad to be toppled and presumably murdered like Muammar Gaddafi in October 2011. From Britain, France, and the USA to Qatar, Saudi Arabia, and Turkey, there is plenty of blame to go around for initiating the unspeakable carnage that has been inflicted upon Syria. There is also ample, if clearly lesser blame, to be shared with Assad, Russia, and Iran, although the simply dreadful Western mainstream media will, unsurprisingly, only ever blame Assad and his allies. The simple fact of the matter, however, is that this was all kicked off by the Gulf and Western nations just mentioned. How does this tie into the broader phenomenon of the USA and its lapdogs arming and funding both sides of the same conflict? Syria is a multi-layered mess with numerous elements such as clans, ethnic loyalties, national loyalties, religion, sect, tribe, and on top of this, a host of regional and international actors interfering both by proxy and with direct aggression. Many parties in the conflict, not just the USA, have maintained paradoxical shifting alliances that you could look into for yourself. One result of this is that the insurgents have never been unified. In addition to attacking pro-Assad or Kurdish forces, the latter of whom the US is also allied with, they've been killing each other by the thousands during various stages of the war. If you'd like an example, there are many to choose from, but you could research the ongoing 2016 clashes along the Turkish border in northern Syria between armed groups funded by the CIA on one side and groups funded by the Pentagon on the other. I'd now like to refer you to a great little article from www.zerohedge.com. It's from June 12, 2014, was written by Tyler Durden and is titled How the US is Arming Both Sides of the Iraqi Conflict. At the very start of the article, it links to another article it had published about a week earlier, titled US Begins Delivering F-16s to Iraq This Week a decade after it wiped out Iraq's Air Force. In the first mentioned article, the crux of the matter was the widely known paradox of US policy in the Iraqi-Syrian arena. Just ask yourself this before I refer back to the article. Why, in a sane world, would the US even have policy, in a military sense, with regards to these two countries? 
Anyone with half an intellect and a shred of decency to go along with it knows full well that Iraq and Syria would have been spared a colossal amount of suffering were it not for US interference. But I digress. Anyway, the paradox highlighted by the article. By 2015, a year before the article was written, it was an established fact that at least 60% of all Syrian rebels were violent extremists who were sympathetic to the Islamic State. This was according to an establishment think tank, the British-based Centre on Religion and Geopolitics. But it only confirmed what was already known. Make no mistake, these were among the insurgents that received arming and funding from the US and others at a time when the Iraqi-Syrian border was little more than a concept, and had no meaning to ISIS, which in English stands for Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, one of several names it had. While the US government was heavily arming its client government in Baghdad for the fight against Salafist jihadists of the Al-Qaeda-slash-ISIS variety in Iraq, the US was arming and funding these same murderous insurgents over the border in Syria with the goal of helping them to topple Damascus. This absurd, morally bankrupt scenario meant that a terrorist in Iraq needed only to cross the hypothetical border into Syria to become a freedom fighter, according to the Western government media complex. I know what you're thinking. You're visualizing it just like me. A bearded, heavily armed jihadist is standing in the desert on the Syrian side of the precise spot which is said to mark the border with Iraq. He jumps to his left and utters the word terrorist. He jumps back to the right and says freedom fighter. The process then repeats itself. Terrorist? Freedom fighter. Terrorist? Freedom fighter. Terrorist? Freedom fighter. This is the fruit of the military-industrial complex with media support. Now though, friends, it's time for what you've been waiting for, the raw data, the facts and figures. You've been waiting patiently, so let's get into it. Let's start off with official lobbying statistics, bearing in mind that official statistics do not take into account the grey zones of lobbying nor the outright illegal forms, thus almost certainly representing only the tip of the iceberg. The official total of lobbying expenditure in the US rose sharply between 1998 and 2010, going from $1.45 billion to $3.52 billion per annum, before slightly dipping and plateauing up to the present with $3.15 billion, the official figure for 2016. This general trend was mirrored in the defense aspect of total overall lobbying, with about $55.3 million spent on defense lobbying in 1998, $148.8 million in 2010, and $129.3 million in 2016. The overall figure on lobbying has increased every year up until 2019, the defense aspect quite constant before a minor drop-off in 2019. 
The figures may not sound like a lot, but consider this. If we take a look at the year 2013 as a case in point, there were approximately double the number of lobbyists from the military-industrial complex in comparison to members of Congress. The official total of defense lobbying expenditure for that year was $139.3 million, about $60 million of which was from the major defense contractors. The result of this investment was a bunch of contracts worth tens of billions of dollars at the very least. For more information on the situation, I refer you to a report from November 6th, 2018 by Daniel Sebul at www.defensenews.com, defense with an S. The title of the piece is New Watchdog Report Decries Revolving Door Between the Pentagon and Defense Contractors. In 2015, the Department of Defense had contracts with over 50,000 companies of various sizes. Naturally, the bulk of the money was allocated to the handful at or near the top of the tree. If you wish, you could easily find a current online list of the top 100 U.S. defense contractors. At the close of literally every business day, new contracts valued at $7 million or more are announced. This kind of information in thorough detail is available on the Department of Defense's own website and includes access to archives from previous years. You can check it for yourself at www.defense.gov slash newsroom with a capital N slash contracts with a capital C slash. To give you an insight into how war is great for the military-industrial complex, let's consider the humble bullet. It is obviously impossible to know for sure, and it would vary from one conflict to the next, but according to conservative estimates, it usually requires tens of thousands of rounds, on average, to rack up a single kill on the battlefield. An early 2011 article written by Andrew Buncombe of the Belfast Telegraph, available online, reported that U.S. forces in Afghanistan and Iraq used, on average, as many as a quarter of a million rounds for each insurgent killed. While the number seems a little high and could be a slight exaggeration, the reports from the General Accounting Office, GAO for short, admitted that some of the rounds would have been expended in the course of training exercises as well. What is not mentioned in the report, however, is that this statistic, gained by calculating the approximate ratio of expended rounds to killed insurgents, does not consider the basic reality that not all insurgents were killed by bullets. Some, for example, would have died in airstrikes, shelling or in some other equally violent but clearly different manner. Think of just how good this is for business. I wish to close this episode with a focus on the international aspect of the military-industrial complex. Not only with reference to the activity of US forces or proxies in various countries, but other countries who are US allies especially when they are among those nations that purchase the most weapons from the USA for their own militaries. 
Within the last decade, well over a hundred nations have purchased heavy armaments from the USA, which is responsible for about a third of all global military exports. The draconian regime of Saudi Arabia is by far the biggest recipient at current and has led the way since at least 2011, but presumably even longer. If you wish to find out how far back this goes, look it up for yourself. In 2016, Saudi Arabia received about a fifth of all U.S. military exports. The total official amount earned by the U.S. in the exports of all foreign arms in 2016 was 33.6 billion dollars, down 13 billion from the previous year for whatever reason. However, it would bounce back in 2017, shooting back up to 41.9 billion dollars. It would rise to 55.6 billion dollars in 2018 and hold steady at 55.4 billion dollars in 2019. In addition to the direct sale of weapons and inevitability of clandestine, barely legal and outright illegal arms trading, the U.S. also engages in a practice known as foreign military financing. In short, this involves providing grants or loans to other nations, who then generally use it to purchase military hardware from the USA. The biggest beneficiary of this scheme, by far, is Israel. Five point seven billion dollars had been earmarked by the State Department for this purpose in 2017, with 3.1 billion of this to be set aside for Israel. Continuing a long-running trend in the modern era, which has not abated in any way up to 2020. I wish to close by recommending an interesting little article for you on this broader topic. It is by Jonathan Turley and was published online by Al Jazeera. It is from January 2014, and the title is "Big Money Behind War: The Military-Industrial Complex." It will provide you an insightful little summary on the military-industrial complex, with mention given to the NATO-led atrocity in Libya. Friends, that shall be all for today. Remember, question everything, do your own research, keep a healthy, open mind, and above all, never forget—you've been given an intellect, so use it. Goodbye.